Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this podcast is called My Time Capsule because in it, I ask people to tell me the five things from their life that they'd want to preserve in a time capsule. So it's aptly named, I think. Yeah, my guest chooses four things that they cherish and would want to have again or keep safe in the time capsule, but they also choose something they want to forget from their past, something they would like to bury in the ground and forget forever. My guest doing that in this episode is the actor and writer Michael Simpkins, who since leaving RADA has appeared in more than a hundred plays and musicals at places like the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company, as well as on The Fringe and in the West End. He's been in the musicals Chicago and Mamma Mia, and he's made countless TV appearances, usually, as he modestly says himself, as a policeman or unsuspecting husband. But his TV work includes the recent drama This Is Going To Hurt, Finding Alice, Silent Witness, Doctors, The Crown, Endeavour, Harlots, Grantchester, EastEnders, Lewis, The Bill, Casualty, New Tricks, Judge John Deed, Green Wing, Brookside, My Family, Foil's War and A Touch of Frost, among many others. He was in the films V for Vendetta, Wild with Stephen Fry and The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep, as well as Mike Lee's Topsy Turvey. His first book, his memoir of breaking into the acting profession, has become required reading for drama students everywhere. He's also the author of Fatty Batter, Detour de France and The Last Flanneled Fool. He lives with his actress wife, Julia Deakin, in London. So, is working with Meryl Streep one of the things Michael would like to put in his time capsule, or other things he treasures seemingly insignificant? Well, let's find out as we hear Michael Simpkins, or as most of the acting profession would say, Simo's time capsule. So, Michael, I'm a great admirer of your work, and unfortunately we hardly ever work together because I think people think we fall into the same category. And actually, when I look at you now, I can see why. Yeah, we often go up for the same parts. In fact, you were one of the actors, Michael, that whenever I used to walk into the waiting room at Spotlight and saw you in the corner, my heart would slightly sink. (laughs) I'm exactly the same, though. So clearly some other bloke got both of our jobs. (laughs) Well, of course, we both did the same job because we both did, yes, Prime Minister, didn't we? You did it for a lengthy spell and so did I. We did, Uh, yes. A decade ago now. Oh, my word, is it that long? Mm. Oh, well. It was a gruelling play, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It was a gruelling play, yeah. It had its moments, but there were some moments which it didn't have. Yes. And uh, I remember, Michael, we performed Yes, Prime Minister, and I think you did it just after me. We Mm -hmm. did it during the Olympic summer of 2012, and we were at the Whitehall Studios. And uh, it was, uh, obviously, it was lovely to be in the centre of town, and particularly at such a glorious moment in recent history. I mean, it it really was a joy to be alive then. But it, it meant that, essentially, 
the only people that were coming to the theatre were bewildered Mexican and Korean tourists. <laughs> so we barely raised a laugh some nights, no. or at least that's, that's the excuse I give. And you wouldn't describe it as a very visual play. It's uh, almost entirely wordy, isn't it? Completely wordy. Nothing happens except there's a lot of political humour, which you don't understand if you're anywhere further than the Isle of Wight. So it was, it, boy, it was a gruelling summer, you know, mm. with all of us nipping out in between the uh, entrances to try and see the 100 metres semi-final and stuff on the stage door television. But... Uh, Never mind. They were good days. The one thing that I've taken from doing those plays with Jonathan Lynn is that he gave me the piece of advice, don't stand behind the sofa when you do a funny line. It won't be as funny. And what a brilliant note. Mm. And I've never stood behind furniture again. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was a man of strong opinions, Jonathan, but he knew his craft. He wrote a book about it. I mean, another one of his bugbears was about the temperature of the auditorium. He said that there's a sort of ambient temperature. If it's too high or too low, the audience stop laughing. And I think there's plenty in that. Yes, I'm sure. Oh, well. Well, so let's delve into your life. Let's delve into your career by talking about five things you'd like to put into a time capsule from it. Yeah. So what have you chosen for me? Well, my first choice is actually an audio recording. Um, I had a an extraordinary childhood, really, Michael. It was a, a very rackety childhood. I grew up in a sweet shop <laughs> just off Brighton Seafront. My dad decided to retire from the civil service after he had a stomach ulcer in the 50s. I was born in 1957, just uh, on the Great West Road, just going out of Greenford. But by the time I was about four, dad had had enough of working in the post office or whatever. And he decided with my mum, Peggy, to take the whole family, me and my two older brothers, down to Brighton. And we bought a sweet shop. Wow. In many ways, it really was an idyllic childhood. Mm. Not only because it was a sweet shop, but because Brighton then was a wonderful town to grow up in. I'm sure you'll know Brighton very well. I'm sure you've performed there. And I mean, these days it still has enormous charm. But in those days, it had a sort of raffish air as well. <laughs> you could always imagine Terry Thomas arriving at the Grand Hotel <laughs> in an open-top sports car with his secretary. You know, it had that sort of slightly raffish feel, yes. which it's since lost. But it was a, a, it was a wonderful place to be growing up. And the question people always ask me when they hear that I was growing up in a sweet shop is, were you able to eat any of the sweets? And the truth is that I was allowed untrammeled access to them at all times of the day or night. (laughs) Perfect. I don't think it was a deliberate decision on the part of Benny and Peggy, but the fact was that running any retail business, but particularly a newsagent's tobacconist and confectioners, which we were, is that you're essentially working like a dog from 5.30 in the morning when you get up to mark the papers till 8 o'clock at night when you're just about to put the close sign up and somebody raps on the door saying, could they have half of Hold Hold and roll up tobacco, please? <laughs> yes. And can, can they pay you on Wednesday? So they were enormously long days for my mum and dad. And they just simply didn't have time to monitor my sweet intake. No. There was just too many other things to do. It meant that by the time I was about um, 15, I was as big as a house. And by the time I was 18, I had hardly any teeth. So there were there were distinctive drawbacks, but it did mean I was very happy and I was very well fed. Mm. So it was a wonderful time to be alive, Michael. And um, I grew up in a very... It wasn't a showbiz-oriented background, but it was It was my childhood was marinated in music. My dad was a very, very good semi-pro dance band musician. Oh. My eldest brother, who's 20 years older than me, if you can believe it, Peter was a very decent trad jazz pianist. And my middle brother is now one of Britain's, I think I can dare say, one of Britain's leading jazz alto saxophonists. And what did your father play? My father played tenor sax. Right. So what it meant was that apart from sweets... The other feature of my life was that there was music thumping out all day and all night. You know, if dad wasn't downstairs practicing his saxophone, my eldest brother would be upstairs playing rags or my middle brother would be learning the saxophone and trying to play some John Coltrane. <laughs> so it meant that by the age of 10, I couldn't have told you any of the leading pop groups in the what I think we called the hit parade, <laughs> but I could have told you what the front line of the Benny Goodman Orchestra was. Yeah. Uh, The point I'm getting to in all this as regards my first choice is that we had 
improbably wonderful Christmases where a lot of relations used to descend on us, uh, probably on about the morning of Christmas Eve. And they would occupy all these spare rooms in this big tall house we had above the premises that we owned. So we'd have Auntie Glad and Uncle Harry down from Wembley. We'd have Dad's brother Percy and his wife Elsie. We'd have Lena and Norman come from Swindon. (laughs) All of them seemed to be able to play a musical instrument. Wow. And all of them seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of early 20th century sort of American-based jazz and dance music. There didn't seem to be a tune from really Scott Joplin right up to Frank Sinatra that they didn't know or couldn't play. Amazing. So the upshot of this was that the Christmases in our house were not only culinary feasting in the old traditional style that families had then, but they were this sort of orgy of music and conviviality. And me as a little four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old boy, I was just drenched in this stuff. And I think in a sense, it was probably the strongest influence on my life. Now, the point I'm getting to is this. In the Christmas of 1964, my auntie Lena from Swindon, somebody bought her a Grundig tape recorder that was space age invention. Yes, amazing. Big, hefty thing. You'll remember them very well. Mm. And she decided to try out her tape recorder, recording some of our parties on Christmas night and Boxing Night. Oh, wow. And she did it for the next 12 years. Oh, my word. Do you still have them? I do. Oh, my word, that's fantastic. I have them now on cassette. I haven't yet transferred them to um, MPI or whatever you call it, and I must do so. But what it means is that there is this extraordinary document lasting probably 12 years from the age when I was five to when I was probably 17 and starting to grow out of that sort of thing. You know, I was a late teenager by then, and indeed they were getting very old, so the Christmases stopped. Mm. But there is this extraordinary audio treasure trove of my Christmases. And I've probably got two or three hours of material from each Christmas over 12 years to just select one at random, like Christmas 1966, when I would have been nine. I can pluck the cassette out, I can put it in, and within seconds, I am taken back into this little room above the shop with all these aunts and cousins and brothers and my late dad and my late mum. And you can hear the chatter. It's, you know, it's, there's nothing particularly performed about it. There's a lot of uh, chatter. You can hear people laughing. You can hear the clinking of bottles. You can hear the lighting of cigars. But through it all, there is this a sort of audio document of all the tunes that they grew up with that they were then passing on to me. And this is probably as you can imagine, really one of my most treasured possessions because Mm. merely to put this on, it is an audio time capsule that immediately places me back in that room. How fantastic. I can remember those parties. The same thing, aunts and uncles, all gathering together and brothers and sisters, they'd had a few drinks and they would all start to sing. So I know that atmosphere. I'm so looking forward to hearing this, but just in my head, I can picture it. But the thing that always really reminds me of it is I can actually sense the smell of it. Strange things like the scent of Dubonnet. Exactly. Yeah, the scent of Dubonnet. You've Mm. absolutely captured that environment in one reference. (laughs) The smell of mannequins and Tom Thumbs, those little cigars that we used to sell downstairs in our shop, you know. Of course. Things like Vorning's Advocar and Tangerines, which was another smell you only really got in the 60s over Christmas. Yes, And why do people only smoke cigars? All of my relatives, none of them smoked. And at Christmas, the room was always full of cigar smoke. That's right. Mm. And not only that, but it was the only time I ever saw my mum Peggy smoke. And she would, she, I never saw my mum smoke except on Christmas night when she would get out an embassy from dad because dad smoked embassy <laughs> and guards. That mm. was another one. Dad smoked 20 guards. And <laughs> mum would smoke a cigarette. Extraordinary. Perhaps it was to give her false confidence because it was the only time I ever heard her sing was on Christmas night when she would sing the same songs every year. And perhaps that cigarette just steadied her nerves because, of course, she was in a very male-dominated environment. She had three sort of music-mad sons. She had a Mm -hmm. music-mad husband. And this was probably the only time I ever saw mum perform. So I suppose the ritual of having an embassy beforehand was something that would just give her the confidence she would need. Is there any particular song that you remember her singing? Oh, yes, Michael. Mm. Goodness, I do. 
she would love to sing This Is My Beloved from Kismet. Oh. <laughs> and also from Kismet, and this is probably the thing, I mean, this is the recording that I still can't hear now. You, you'll understand why when I tell you. There's a recording from one of the Christmases of her singing um, Give Me the Sunshine of Your Smile. Give, Give me, the me long, your smile. The your eyes. Oh. She sings the first verse in it with my mm. auntie Glad accompanying her on the piano. And then the whole family, the whole room joins in with a chorus. Oh. And then dad sings the second verse to her. Oh my and way. it's the only time they ever sing. But to, to hear it, I, I can still well up at the mere thought of it. Because, of course, they're both long gone now. Yes. Would you like to hear a little bit? I would love to hear a little bit. Yes, please. This, if I can get it to work, you'll have to excuse me. I've just got to uh, reach this very ancient cassette player. And I hope this comes over. This is just a little bit of a song that was very big in the 30s called My Blue Heaven. And this is just a little flavour of it. This is the, you'll hear, I think, a bit of my brother playing piano solo, and then you'll hear the whole family singing the last chorus. Oh, yes. Now, there's a party I'd like to have been at. <laughs> that is so fantastic. How lovely to have all those people who could play instruments. But it's great, isn't it, when people just automatically start singing. There's no embarrassment to it. It's, it's, it's what you do. Mm. In a way, I think that comes because they were a generation where if you wanted music, somebody sat down and played it at the piano and you would all sing along. There are mm. harmonies going on in there, which I love, just automatically. Yeah, you couldn't sing a song without my Uncle Percy deciding to sing thirds in harmony. He, mm -hmm. would, he would sing thirds in harmony to any song that was going. And I think also, Michael, it, it was obviously redolent of an earlier age. You know, these people who'd grown up in the 20s, 30s, 40s, my dad and his brother Percy, Percy and all the others had been to war. They'd helped with the invasion of Germany. There wasn't that, um, one might say, suffocating influence of television then. People played much more. They sung much more. They made their own entertainment much more. Radio was really the only medium. And of course, that itself would encourage performance because a lot of it was light music, you know, yes. the home service and all that. So I think people of that generation had a natural ability to, to sing and perform. It also meant that because my dad had a very good band, which my eldest brother played, and then my, my middle brother took up the other, and he, he then formed his own band. So it meant that virtually every Sunday of my childhood, I remember sitting in pubs listening to jazz from seven o'clock till 10 o'clock at night. I always went to bed far too late. I was half done in at school because, you know, <laughs> whereas other kids were sitting at home watching the Foresight Saga on Sunday evening and being sent off to nine o'clock, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, I was still in a pub with a lemonade watching my dad help pack up the drum kit. <laughs> I have this vision of this extremely large toothless child <laughs> yes. yawning all the way through school. That's me, Michael. <laughs> yeah, but at least you got to spend every summer on the beach. I did. What an idyllic childhood. Mm -hmm. And how fantastic to have those memories. I can listen to that and it gives me chills. Really? Because it encapsulates a period that to a large extent is gone, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, without getting too portentous about it, you know, I often wonder, Michael, whether Brighton Museum would be interested in having these recordings because it is, as you say, a moment in time. And If you had a house that was preserved in the style of that time and you had that playing as a soundtrack going on in the background, I could sit for hours in there. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, that's so lovely. Thank you. What a wonderful thing to put into Time Capsule. I've done a lot of these programmes and I think possibly... That has thrilled me more than anything else. Oh, it's nice to hear, Michael. That's great. So I'm delighted to put that into your time capsule as your first item. Good man. Right, OK. Let's move on to item number two, Michael. Item number two is a little tin box. And um, 
It's a little cricket game called How's That? Oh, yes. I know it well. You may well have played it at school because Ooh. every other kid I knew did. And it consists of two metal rollers. They're not smooth. They've got edges on them. On one of the rollers, the edges are imprinted one, two, three, four, six, and how's that? <laughs> and the second roller is imprinted on the edges with bold, LBW, not out, stumped, caught, no ball. Mm. And this little tin has probably given me, with due respect to my wife, given me more pleasure than anything else in my, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope she can't hear this. And uh, it's a cricket game, a little cricket game. What happens is uh, your listeners will already have deduced is it's a virtual cricket game whereby you roll the first one and you get a one and your batsman gets a two and a four and a six. And then eventually it'll land on as that. And then you roll the second roller to see whether the batsman is out or not. Mm. And it's amazing how much fun you can have with such a simple device. But the little tin set is emblematic of the game of cricket, which has played a large part in my life. You know, when you're a very fat, overweight boy with no teeth, <laughs> and I was in quite a sporty secondary school. I went to a Brighton Grammar School. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful institution. I was generally very happy there. But they had obviously very, very good standard of football and all those sort of things. And I was no good at them. And I suffered a lot as, uh, you know, due, due to reference anxiety, really. You know, I was always the last kid to be chosen in the playground football. And I was never chosen for my house side. But one afternoon, I cut, it was during the summer holidays, my dad used to have an hour off for lunch when mum would come up and look after the shop for an hour while dad sat in our rear shop parlour and he would have whatever concoction mum had made for him for lunch. He'd have it on his lap and he'd be reading a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William L. Shirer. The book was about a thousand pages long. If it fell on your foot, it would break your toe. <laughs> and my dad only had an hour to read. So it was a bit like the fourth bridge. By the time he'd finished reading it, he'd forgotten <laughs> the start. It's the only book I ever remember my dad reading, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. But one afternoon in the summer holidays, I must have been about 12. I'd just started secondary school. I came home and dad was having his lunch and he wasn't reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. He was watching sport on our black and white telly. Mm. And I sat down. I said, what's this? He said, this is a test match, Mikey. Just sit down and watch it. I'm just having my lunch. And um, it was the first time I'd ever encountered the game of cricket. And um, I watched and there was a cricketer playing for England in that match against the West Indies. It was the summer when we played the West Indies. An enormously fat, burly Northamptonshire cricketer called Colin Milburn. Mm. You'll remember him, perhaps. I do. Hugely overweight great mop of tousled hair, a fearless batsman, despite his very, very overweight nature. You know, he was a most thrilling player to watch. And I think a couple of days later, I think was when he scored his 93 against the West Indies at their fastest. And this great big fat lad from County Durham uh, <laughs> stood up to them. He had nothing more to protect him than a pair of batting gloves and a towel down his front thigh. <laughs> but it was thrilling to watch. The point is that it was the first game when I ever thought... This is something that a boy like me could play. I look like Colin Milburn, and if mm. he can play it, I can play it. Mm. And it started enthusing me with a, a love of cricket. So I started going along to our local club, which is Sussex County Cricket Club, which was in nearby Hove. And I fell in love with the game. I fell in love with the ebb and flow of it, the extraordinary nature of it, whereby it would unfold over hours and days and nothing would happen for hours. And then suddenly in a couple of minutes, the whole nature of the game would change. The idea that a draw could be as thrilling as a win or a loss. Yes. Some of the Sussex cricketers became my sort of pin-up heroes, people like Jim Parks and John Snow and Ted Dexter. Uh, I'd start queuing for their autographs. And I started playing it myself. Mm. But the point of this particular How's That set is that for an, a kid with an over-imaginative psyche and with two brothers, one of whom was 10 years older than me and the other is 20 years older than me, so my parents mm. presumably had sex once every decade. <laughs> um, it's the only conclusion I can make yes. from these statistics. <laughs> but, you know, my eldest brother by now was working at the Imperial War Museum. He certainly didn't have time to play with me. And my middle brother, by the time I was 10, he was 19. He didn't want to have a teenager trawling around after him, spoiling his romantic liaisons. So I was left very much to my own devices. And I started playing this game, How's That?, on the carpet in the evenings. 
And I started inventing an entire world of imaginary cricketers. May I say, most of my schoolmates who also played How's That, when they played imaginary games between teams, they would have the current England cricketers, mm-hmm. Colin Milburn, Ted Dexter, and they'd play pretend matches with the real players in their minds. Yes. For reasons I never know, I invented an entirely new world of imaginary cricketers. That's 18 counties and <laughs> six international sides. <laughs> You were on your own. I was on my own. Mm. And, you know, even today, if you say to me, what was your imaginary Nottinghamshire side from when you were playing How's That? I can immediately say it was Mann, Battersby, Herriot, Dempton, Brawl, Falcon, Forbes was the wicketkeeper, and then we had the Chalker, Marlowe, Jones and Ringman. Now, (laughs) none of these people exist, Michael. No. Except in my head. But they were great cricketers. Some of them were great cricketers. And every now and again, people would have extraordinary innings. And that is a great joy of that game, isn't it? You can play without the possibility of cheating. You can play against yourself. You can be both teams. You can. And every now and again, in comes the 11th man. And he will do this extraordinary thing of getting a half century. <laughs> That's right. You roll on Elzat loads of times. <laughs> and every time they say no ball. And, oh, he's got away with it again. He's got away with it. <laughs> well, you've taken the words out of my mouth. I could be interviewing you here. We've obviously had similarly very disrupted backgrounds. Um, because well, you're right. What it means is that it allows your imagination to run riot. You know, mm. as you say, the number 11 can score 50 the leading batsman can be out for naught. And I found inevitably that as I was spending hours playing these matches, I had entire county championships. That's 116 double innings games I would play. (laughs) And of course, inevitably, once I started having images of what these different players might look like and how good they were and what their histories were, I started commentating to myself. Mm -hmm. I started imitating the commentators. So as I was rolling these endless dice, you know, I would say, and it's uh, Marlowe comes in and bowls to Brawl again. Oh, that's four. Brawl's got four away. And now that brings Runting up to the end. And and now they're bringing the field in now here because he's not such a good... Oh, it's an appeal. Oh, it's not out. So uh, they only need another 37... My wife even today says, what on earth were you doing with your life? You know, why why did your parents not discipline you? (laughs) But the fact that they didn't. No. And all that commentary, unlike the long wave commentary, was done with a mouthful of sweets. Exactly so. I'd have a big bag of needless nut brittle and another bag of coconut mushrooms and I'd be on the carpet playing as that, putting my hand into these sweets, devouring them, losing my teeth. It was my idea of perfect happiness. And years later, when I was in my late 30s and appearing at the National Theatre, a friend of mine rang me up and said, have you seen an advert in today's Guardian? They're looking for commentators to cover county championship matches for the new 0898 services that were then coming in. And for the first time, you could get phone-in commentaries and Mm. you could check scores of sports you liked on your phone rather than having to wait for the news bulletins, you know, or wait for the evening edition of the paper. And I sent off to this new company, Cricket Call, saying, you know, I'm interested in cricket and I know a bit about it. And they asked me to do a demo tape. So I did a demo cassette of me doing an imaginary commentary on one of my How's That teams. They called me in and the guy who later became a skiing commentator, Julian Tutt, his name was, he was head of it, recruitment. And he said to me, Michael, he said, yes, you you can definitely commentate. Um, You really know your stuff. I don't know who any of these players are, but it sounded (laughs) a wonderful match. I explained what I was doing. He said, well, you know, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an actor. He said, what are you in at the moment? I said, I'm in a view from the bridge at the National Theatre with Michael Gambon. It was a long pause. And he said, I've been trying to get tickets for that. I want to bring eight people, but there are no seats left. (laughs) I said, Julian, I might be able to help you. He said, if you could, there may be something in it for you. The upshot was that I somehow managed to wrangle eight tickets for what then was the hottest ticket in town. Julian brought his family and I spent the next three years when I wasn't acting, going up and down the country, commentating on live county championship and international cricket. Oh, my word. The perfect job for you. The perfect job. And indeed, if I was in town in a West End play, Michael, there were days when I would commentate at Lord's from 11 till 6 and then go in and do the evening show. I'm sure. Is there a better scenario (laughs) for any sports-mad, theatre-mad boy than that? I was in Nirvana. It's not work at all, is it? (laughs) 
<laughs> people say, oh, you must have been exhausted. He said, no, no, invigorated. Absolutely loved it. Mm. And I would sit there in the top turret at Lords, commentating on Middlesex, Surrey or Middlesex, Sussex. And, you know, occasionally one of the cricketers would come up and join us. I remember Dennis Lilly came up, you know, he was a God for me, you know, mm. the Australian fast bowler. He came up and sat and I, I thought, what am I doing? I'm sitting commentating on cricket with Dennis Lilly next to me. And not only that, but at lunchtime, they'd bring you up a ham salad and some jam roly-poly and I wouldn't even have to pay for it. <laughs> they were great days. And that is why I look back on this little tin, mm. my how's that tin, you know, unbeknown to me, I was sort of learning not only to enlarge my imagination and to in- indulge my sporting passion, but also I was inadvertently learning to be a cricket commentator at the same time. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I shall put that original Alzat tin into your time capsule. Keep it safe, I think, because if I'd listened to this, in fact, I wouldn't have listened this far. I would have stopped, gone straight on Google and ordered myself one. <laughs> I remember it as a boy. It was a great way of spending hours and hours having enormous fun in your head. Mm. Well, that's item number two. Let's move on to see what number three is. Right, sorry to interrupt. I hope you're having fun, but we need to take a short break for some ads. We'll be back with more from Michael in a second. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to part two of Michael Simkin's Time Capsule. Let's see what else he'd like to preserve and the one thing he'd like to bury and forget. Number three, Michael, is my first ever paycheck as a professional actor. It's from Canterbury County Council. It's a pay slip. It's a bit battered now. It's my first ever week's wage, which I got on the 17th of September, 1978. It's for gross pay for the week, £55.50. <laughs> Deductions, £3.61. I brought home that week from my first week as a professional actor at the Marlowe Theatre Canterbury, the princely sum of £51.90. And I don't know how I've managed to keep it. I'm not normally all that sentimental. I'm not a hoarder. But there was something about being paid for the first time to act professionally. It's such a threshold to cross because for the first time in your life, you're being paid to do the thing that you always wanted to do. Mm. Does that make sense to you? It does completely, and I remember the occasion myself. I remember it very well. What was yours? Uh, My first professional paid job, I was still a student, and I performed on the Frankie Howard radio show. Wow. Mm. Wow. I know. It's weird, isn't it? I did it because we'd been to Edinburgh that summer, and we'd been hired to do a pilot show for the BBC, and I said, I don't really know what this is about. The producer, who was Jimmy Mulville, he said, come down to London, I'll put you in a show. And I said, oh, great. Do I get paid? He said, yeah, I think we can wangle that. And it was (laughs) £16, Michael. Not bad for an evening's work. And uh, I went in the show. I did get paid, even though halfway through I got sacked. Because? Because I, I stole Frankie Howard's joke 
I upstaged him, and he stopped the show and had me sacked on the spot. <laughs> Is that true? Absolutely true. I was sacked from my first professional job, yeah. What an awful thing. Mm-hmm. How did you cope with that? Because as a young actor, something like that would have given me nightmares for months. What I took from it was the fact that I had got a really big laugh by using his trick. He said to the audience, I do this thing. If I need a laugh in the show, I do this thing. And I did something that got a sort of a titter, as he might well have described it. And so I did his trick and it got a big laugh and a round of applause. And that's, of course, what I took away. The ego of an actor I took away with me. I got a big laugh. They really liked me. Mm. It did teach me to never upstage the star. Was the (laughs) sacking, it sounds very public. It was very public actually in front of the audience at the Paris studios. Wow. He said, get rid of that boy. Get him off my stage. And uh, Jimmy Morville came over and said, Mike, can you, can you go? I said, what, should I just go in the green room? He said, no, no, go. And I said, do I still get paid? And he said, yeah, 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 just go. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that would have set me back. That, that does you great credit that you were resilient enough to be able to absorb that. Perhaps it wasn't a problem for you. For me, that would have been a problem. Right. I would have crumbled. Yes, I think that particularly at that age, I was very full of myself. I was very self-confident. I believed I could do anything. Mm. But there we are. That's enough of me. It's a fantastic story. But um, what it does tap into is the same reason that I've chosen this payslip. It is that exhilarating moment when you suddenly turn from a student into a professional. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first... You know, like all of us at that time, you could only work if you had an equity card and you could only have an equity card if you were given one. And most repertory theatres in Britain only had two a year to give out. So they were, as you'll remember, rare as hen's teeth. And, Mm. you know, I left RADA without a job in the summer of 1978. And, you know, I I wasn't sure I was ever going to get off the chocks. And then, incredibly, the Marlowe Theatre gave me 19 weeks' work to play as cast. And I remember the the morning that I set off from Brighton. I took the country route through via Hastings and Ashford to Canterbury, you know. This sort of extraordinary sense of being a young man on a train with suitcases going to a, my first ever job. And I, I never, it sounds so cheesy, so you must forgive me, but I never forget, I stepped off at Canterbury South Station. I think we were meeting at two and I stepped off at probably half 12, never been to Canterbury. And there was a poster for the play I was about to start rehearsing on the station platform. And it was such a sense of, wow, I might have a chance here. I Mm. might have a chance of making it. And, you know, other odd things I remember about those sort of early days, like the fact that the curtain at the Marlowe Theatre of Canterbury dropped rather than parted. At RADA, we'd had a curtain that squeaked open and (laughs) then squeaked closed. And that was, you know, very thrilling. But, you know, it was such a sort of emblematic thing that when you took your curtain call after, after the dress rehearsal, do excuse me, I've never been so popular. Um, (laughs) That the curtain dropped on you like something was descending from high. These were sort of odd things that I'd seen in Hollywood movies, but I'd I'd never experienced. And these things made a huge impression on me at the time. And I remember thinking it was probably the first time that I thought, oh, I might might be able to make it as an actor. And of course, 55 pounds at then. I mean, that was a king's ransom in those days. Mm. I'd come from earning 17 pounds a week working in gambling. Family's toy shop in Hove, which I'd done after leaving Rada because I couldn't get a job. So although it seems a pitiful amount then, I had quite a lot to spare out of 55 quid. Yes, you could find nice cheap digs and just spend every night in the pub. Yes, Mrs. Willie was my first landlady. <laughs> and I was very happy there for about five days until she called me into the lounge and said, Michael, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but would you mind not coming home between 10 in the morning and six at night? Because I have friends round for whist in the afternoon and I don't want them to know that I take in theatricals. Oh, uh, so you had to walk the streets. I had to walk the streets. And eventually, of course, you know, one of the older actors in whatever it was, Joseph in his dream coat that I think I was doing said, you know, stuff that Simo come and stay with us we've got a spare room in our place and of course then I was away then yeah it's fantastic whiskey a go-go from then on (laughs) but uh, it was a very happy time and um you know that whole repertory system that obviously now has largely been swept away I mean it it has its deficiencies but it was a wonderful time to be alive and a wonderful environment in which to learn your craft as a young actor you know I gave some 
execrable performances in rep over the, my first six or seven years. But luckily, by the time I, you know, I was in slightly tastier venues, I'd got most of my really terrible performances <laughs> out of the way. It took me a while, actually, to get to that point. I sort of did my first few years as a member of a review group, and we created our own work. Wow. So actually joining a proper theatre and becoming part of a company, that didn't happen to me for quite a few years. And when you did, did you miss the slightly freer nature of the stuff that you were doing? Did it seem all a little sedate and old men in corners of the rehearsal room reading the Daily Telegraph and all that, well, or not? We had got to the point where we were quite used to the idea that you could chip in with any idea. Luckily, I was cast in the lead role in Tom Jones for my first play. Wow. And so, in fact, that very strange thing that only really happens, I think, in theatre is where people of enormous experience, they defer to you because you've got the lead role. So I had that freedom to sort of chip in. We'll say, why don't we do this and why don't we do that, which is what we've been doing as a review company. I did have to learn later on that you have to, in a way, slightly temper that. As a young actor treading that fine line between trying to make a contribution to the rehearsals process and not coming over as some cocky smartass who's got too much to say for himself, it's a fine one. It certainly is. It's very easy to fall off that tightrope, as I know to my own cost. <laughs> as I'm sure we all do. <laughs> but there we are. I had six months at Canterbury. I then did a year at York where I did nine different plays, finishing up with Dick Whittington and his wonderful cat where I was horrible head. Henry to Gary Oldman's cat. Um, I did a year and a half with Alan Akebourne. I did a year and a half at Bristol Old Vic. I probably racked up 60 or 70 plays in my first seven or eight years. So by the time that I got what I suppose was my big break, which was going to the Chichester Festival Theatre with Nick Heitner, who then was completely unknown. But I suppose by then I'd sort of sorted my craft out and my approach in the rehearsal room as well. Yes. I must have been insufferable when I was younger, but people were, <laughs> people were very tolerant of me. Yes, I think there are moments when you look back on yourself at that age and think, oh, shut up, you idiot. <laughs> but never mind. How lovely to have that pay slip as a reminder of that time and to remember that thrill, the thrill of being given the opportunity to actually do it professionally. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay, that goes in as your third item. So we've got two left. We have one that you love and one that you want to get rid of. Well, the one remaining example of something that I'd like to keep forever locked in this time capsule. Incredibly, I only found this about 18 months ago. My dad, Benny, died in um, 1981. He was sort of early 70s, and I'm not that much younger now. Anyway, um, so he died many years ago, and my mum, Peggy, died about 15 years ago. And, um, you know, because I was had very late on, you know, I was 20 years after my eldest brother, I only really knew my mum and dad as older people. Mm. I don't have any notion of them as being young or anything. But inevitably, I've I've inherited a couple of things from my parents that I, you know, I keep. I've got a, and one of them was a book that my mum was very fond of in her last years. You remember the author Patience Strong? Yes. Who writes sort of homilies, really, little <laughs> stories and homilies. Mm. Very unfashionable now, but she sold in her millions. And she always used to have a little Christmas book called Patience Strong's Christmas. And we always used to give my mum a copy of this. And I inherited one of them, and I've had it on my bookshelves for years and years and years. Anyway, I can't remember why, but about 18 months ago, I got it down. Perhaps mm. I was thinking of clearing it out, and I just riffled through it. And this fell out, and it's a postcard. It's not sent, it's a, just a postcard. And it's a postcard with a little photograph of a thatched cottage on it, and a little homily by Patience Strong. <laughs> and the title of this little homily, I'm going to read it out, is... Gratitude. It's old and dog-eared and very faded. Gratitude. There's always cause for gratitude, no matter what fate takes away. Something worthwhile to remember at the end of every day. Though problems vex the anxious mind, though fortune frowns and cares depress, we can always find some reason for a prayer of thankfulness by Patience Strong. Oh. So that's that. But on the other side of it, mm -hmm. written in pencil, is this, my darling Ben, how grateful I am, dear, that you have come safely home again from the war. <gasps> Although you have been away for such a long time, the years of waiting have been so worthwhile. God bless you, darling, and a lifetime of happiness. All my love, Peg. Oh, Michael, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm. With all the troubles that we've had recently, you do forget that that generation went through 
that extraordinary separation from each other and enormous worry. It must have been so terrifying. And uh, when you talk about the tape of your party and things like that, I think back to those times, and I didn't realise at the time just what those people had suffered and why they laughed so freely, I think. I think you're right. And that time is now starting to seem as ancient as the Crimean War, really, certainly to the next generation, and, and that's how it should be. You mm-hmm. know, you, one, one can't live in the past forever, but it's starting to seem a very long time ago now. And it's very hard to... Think of, as you've said, Michael, you put it so beautifully, it's very hard now to put yourself in the position of the generation before us as young people. I remember my mum and dad well, but I only remember them from being sort of 45 plus, 40 plus. But they were once young people. And as this card, you know, it really brought it home to me is that my mum wasn't this sort of little roly-poly Chelton woman having a, an embassy on Christmas night and, and warbling a bit of kismet. You know, she brought up my eldest brother, Peter, in London by herself for four years while dad was away. My brother, Pete, remembers very clearly being in the Anderson shelter in the garden with mum, mm. with the bombs falling overhead. He remembers that very clearly. And she didn't know whether he was going to come home. And as you say, it's very easy now to take all that for granted and think, oh, well, they knew what was going to happen. We were going to win and they weren't going to get killed and we'd all be all right. But of course, they didn't know that at all, did they? Not at all, no. Any moment, everything changes. Mm. Do you think your mother ever gave that to your father? Do you know, I've never asked myself that question. But thinking about it, now that you've just directly asked me, I think it's quite possible that she did give it to him, but then retrieved it. Mm. Because it's not the sort of thing my dad would have kept. He was not overtly sentimental man in that sense. I don't remember him often embracing my mum. They, they were happy enough. They weren't an unhappy couple, but he was not particularly emotionally demonstrative. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if mum perhaps gave that card to dad and then probably squirreled it away somewhere when he was out of the pub or when perhaps she thought it might go missing or be chucked out. Or indeed, he took it, read it and said, thank you very much, Peg, that's lovely. Thank you very much. And gave it back. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my wife, Julia, Julia Deacon, who's an, an actress, you know, Julia, she often tells the tale of the fact that her mother, Wynne, had their firstborn just before her husband went away to the war, Ernie. And Ernie came back four years later and a week later said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are and I don't know what I'm doing here. And he left because he was coming back to a, a stranger. He didn't know the boy that was born, who was now four. The boy didn't know him. But more crucially, he didn't know the woman he was now living with anymore. You know, it was it was a pastime to him. Yes. And he left and, and she remarried. And the result is my wife. But... Uh, it was an extraordinarily seismic time. And, and um, the things that we take for granted, they couldn't be taken for granted at all by that generation. No. And yet they rarely spoke about it. Did your father talk about being in the army at all? A little bit. He was not. He was. I knew a couple of dad's army friends who used to sometimes come down and spend a weekend with us, you know. So in my case, my eldest brother, my 82-year-old brother, Pete, his job throughout his life, apart from playing the piano, was director of exhibitions at the Imperial War Museum. Oh. So he's, uh, he happens to be a leading expert on the First World War and, to an extent, the Second. So, therefore, there was a sort of natural conduit of conversation. I mean, it would have been impossible for Dad not to have talked about it because his youngest son had made that his profession. But, no, Dad had no problem ab- uh, about that. But it was an extraordinary time. And, and I, you know, you just reminded me, I remember doing a, a film a few years ago and there was an old bloke who's, this was just before digitalization. so there was an old bloke whose job it was to take stills of the film we were doing. You, you'll be familiar with them. You know. and he was an old grey-haired bloke in terrible old slacks from CNA and he was festooned with cameras and he was always getting, you know, do you mind if we just have a shot, you know, and the young actors were getting completely fed up with him, you know, mm. and, and he was a subject of some, not, you know, gentle derision, like he's always getting in the way of this bloke. He's just doing his job, you know, that's what he was hired for. Mm. But then suddenly somebody said to me, did you know that that guy was a Spitfire pilot in the Battle of Britain? No. And suddenly... You know, that old man who was slightly bothersome Mm. in those old CNA slacks suddenly dropped away and you saw him as he must have been when he was 20. Yes, amazing. Wow. We should all look at other people, Mm. particularly old people, and think, what extraordinary things have they done in their life? Now hobbling down the road or annoying me in a queue in the post office. That's right. Yes. And that card, it's so heartfelt and it's so moving. 
to think that actually with such a simple few words, she expressed the awfulness that she'd been through. And all the more precious because I didn't know I had it till about 18 months ago. No, but I will take it and preserve it for you. <laughs> we'll keep it safe in the time capsule. Lovely. So we've got one final thing to do, Michael, which is uh, look at the thing you'd like to get rid of from your life. Uh, yeah, it's quite simple. This won't detain us very long. I'd like to get rid of all rear car seats in cars. <laughs> Fair enough. Any particular reason? Well, one of the things about being a man about town, such as I am, <laughs> a distinguished actor, a celebrated writer and uh, a tra- traveller of some experience, <laughs> is that uh, I like to think of myself as being the sort of man that you can put on a plane at a moment's notice, you know, go and write about this, go and write about that. And uh, I've done some wonderful travel gigs in my time. I've been to Ukraine, funnily mm. enough, which was one of my ones I wrote for Vanity Fair. I did a big travel piece on travelling around Ukraine. Uh, I've been to the Singapore Grand Prix. I did a book where I went around France, Michael. Uh, I've been to Chicago for the Daily Telegraph. I've been to Hollywood twice for the Daily Mail. And, you know, they are wonderful gigs. And so I, I, I like to pride myself on being an experienced traveller. And not, nothing much can rattle me as long as I I've got my credit card and a camera and, and and a book. I can really survive, you know, the longest bus journey through Mexico or anything yes. like that. The problem with it is that the moment I get into the back of cars, I feel carsick. <laughs> Not a great traveller then. It only happens in the back. If I'm in the front, I'm as right as ninepence. But the moment I get into the back of a car... Julia, my wife, she knows it well. Sometimes we, ha- I have to get into the back of the car... And Julia knows what's coming, is that however short the journey, after about eight or nine minutes, first of all, I go silent. And then my mouth starts watering. And then I start to go a slightly muddy grey colour. And if the car isn't stopped, I'm, you know, I'm really in trouble. And it lets me down every time. And of course, you'll know this. The worst thing about it is that whenever you do a filming job, a nice car always arrives Man opens the door. Hello, Michael. Lovely to meet you. You know, it'll be an hour to Oxford for Midsummer Murders, but no problem. Do sit in the back. Um, I always arrive at these filming venues feeling absolutely <laughs> wretched, which is as much as I can do, not to throw up over the leading actor. And um, I don't know what it is, why it should happen in the back, why it shouldn't happen in the front, but it's been the bane of my life and it really it, it really undermines my credentials as being a seasoned traveller. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> and you couldn't possibly be a royal, could you imagine that? If you'd been born into the royal family, your entire life would be disastrous. Well, I wouldn't be able to go anywhere. (laughs) I'd be like Prince Andrew. (laughs) So I'm I'm hoping that one day I'll be able to get over this thing. But until such time as it is, uh, I just like little sporty two-seaters where I can just slip into the front seat and try and preserve this fragile carapace that is Michael Simpkins Incorporated. (laughs) And off round France again, you and Julia, (laughs) her with her scarf flowing in the breeze. Me with my leather driving gloves, yeah, exactly. With the sunshine of your smile playing on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And a quarter of nut brittle in the car well between us. How perfect. How brilliant. Well, Michael, that definitely goes in there. I'll lock it away. You don't have to go in the back of a car ever again. Thank you, Michael. You're very welcome. And how delightful to hear the things you want to put into a time capsule. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been really an enormous pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed revisiting some of these items. Before I tell you all the stuff that I normally tell people at the end of the podcast, let's listen to a little bit more of Michael's Christmas party. This one's from 1967 and features quite heavily his mum.
fantastic recording my thanks to michael simpkins for being on my podcast and my thanks to you for listening we've got lots of other episodes to listen to and you can hear all new episodes as they become available if you subscribe for free to this podcast on the podcast player of your choice please do rate the show before you go and maybe even write a short review you can follow me and my time capsule on twitter instagram and facebook to see what we're up to and who our guests are going to be and you can listen to the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music anytime on Spotify. The producer of this cast-off production was John Fenton Stevens, and it was made through Acast. Right, only a week or so to go till the second birthday of my time capsule. Hooray, yeah, horns blowing and fireworks going, oh, never mind, which we're celebrating with two very special episodes. One has a special guest, who I know you'll love, and the other has some even more special guests, because it will be a number of our listeners telling me the things they'd like to put in a time capsule. Although if any of them pick my time capsule, which, you know, let's face it, I wouldn't blame them, it's going to really bugger things up. I mean, how can we make any more if we're locked in some private capsule? It'll be like Star Trek, or even more complicated and impossible to understand than that. A real quantum conundrum. No, no, not Stephen Hawking. That's a doddle. I'm talking about Doctor Who. That's impossible to understand. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.